0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Lara Ehrlich, and our guest today is Kendra Kendra DiCallo. Before I introduce Kendra, thank you all for tuning in, and please chat with us during the interview. We'll leave your comments into our conversation. If you enjoy the episode, please also consider becoming a patron or patroness to help keep, help keep the podcast going. Clearly, I cannot speak today. And now I'm excited to introduce Kendra. Keira DiCallo is the author of three poetry collections, I Am Not Trying to Hide My Hungers from the World, My Dinner with Ron Jeremy, and Thieves in the Afterlife, selected by Yosef Komandiyaka for the 2013 Saturnalia Books Poetry Prize. She is also co-author of Low Budget Movie, a collaborative chapbook written with Tyler Mills. She has received awards and fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, McDowell, and the Breadloaf Writers Conference, the Malay Colony, Split This Rock, and the Tennessee Arts Commission. Her poems and essays have appeared in American Poetry Review, Tin House Magazine, Waxwing, Los Angeles Review, Bitch Magazine, Vita, and elsewhere. She has performed her work in comedy clubs and music venues, including the Newport Folk Festival, and she has taught at Sarah Lawrence College, Vanderbilt University, and the Tennessee Prison for Women. She currently teaches at the Hugo House and lives in Nashville, Tennessee, where she has a five-year-old daughter and a baby on the way in August. She describes writer motherhood in three words as adjusting previous expectations. And now, welcome, Kendra. Hello. Hello, Hi! So thank you excited. so much for joining us. This is wonderful. Thank you.
1: thank you so much for having me be part of the show and be part of this community. Um, I feel like this is, it's become its own network and family, and it's an honor to be part of the conversation.
0: Thank you. Thank you. That's definitely the goal is to have a community around writer motherhood. Um, so I'm really thrilled to welcome you into it. And I'm awesome. going to hold up your book here, which we'll talk about a little bit um, I am not trying to hide my hunger from the world. Um, Kendra, remind me, since so I have a copy, I don't quite recall. Is it out yet or is it forthcoming in a month yes. or
1: so? It came out in April, so it's been out for a couple months. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of like midway through the scheduled book tour and it's been, Yeah. I think it's been fun. Yeah.
0: Okay, we'll, we'll talk yeah. about virtual book tours a little bit too, and cool. about the rare beast cool. of, of what that is. But, um, yeah. but yes, I'll the book is available. About... It's out there. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, so, everyone, please pick it up. It's amazing, and we'll we'll get to that. Um, but first, can you tell us a little bit about your three words for describing writer motherhood? Adjusting previous expectations.
1: Yeah, right or I almost put it constantly adjusting expectations. And I mean that I feel like that could sound kind of negative or like oh everything is always being readjusted, but I think I mean it in like a really beautiful way. Um that to be fluid and flexible is such a wonderful gift of motherhood and to really see um that state of of having to change kind of who I thought I was and what writing looked like has been a gift. Um And it's it, it kind of inspired or it was I feel like that was really made clear for me in the book of 100 essays I didn't have time to write um by the playwright. And of course, I'm blanking on her name. But if I remember it, I'll put it in the chat. Um But she writes that um, she felt herself being annihilated by motherhood. And then she came to this realization, then fuck it, like let let this previous self be annihilated. It must not have been that great anyway. If it could so easily be dismantled and how that gave her permission to just walk into the next chapter. And I feel like, um, there's so much resist or I felt resistance and how beautiful to say like, no, I actually have this freedom and this power to, to shift perspective and change what I thought I was going to be and do.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. Right. Um, I love that book for any. Yeah, right. Thank you. Dinah. Um, Sarah Rule. Yes. I, I, yes. I, so good. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love books that, um, sort of yours that take the feel of motherhood and um, represent it in um, different forms than we Mm -hmm. come to expect. Like Mm a 100 essays left unfinished. That's exactly what motherhood is like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and
1: how that's not like a deficit or it's not like, oh, they're unfinished. Right. It's like this amazing like what an incredible invention or like. I mean, I love I love fragments and I love things that are unfinished and that find their other half like a year later. You know, like I feel like so much of the book was written in that way. Like, all right, I'm just going to write these fragmented thoughts at four in the morning. And then like six months later, I'm like, oh, OK, like these fragments are like starting to find each other. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's a much different pace than what I was used to. And like I like to write kind of like feverishly and like one go and. Um, but this, yeah, it was really nice to kind of have my life inform my writing in a real way.
0: Absolutely. Did you yeah. write the poems in this book? Um, I guess how so far back in your five-year-old daughter's life did you start writing these poems, like, before she was born, when she was just born? Yeah.
1: Well, so, my din- so the book My Dinner with Ron Jeremy, which is the book before this, I wrote when I was pregnant. I, um, I got the book contract when I was like, you know, two months pregnant and I was like, I'm going to finish this before she's born. And I had the, I got to go to a, like a writing residency and really work on it. And so it was written in this kind of like amazing, like pregnant, horny state, <laughs> which
0: is like part of the like
1: porn conversation <laughs> that occurs. Mm-hmm. And then, and then um, after, so then my daughter was born and I really didn't write for um probably the first seven months or so, except for, you know, sometimes taking notes Um, but I, I really couldn't, like I felt for a lot of reasons for, I had postpartum anxiety and writing itself felt very fraught for me until it wasn't until writing actually became like a life raft and was a way for me to, to like put myself back together. But, um, I, yeah, around seven months and really when she was a year old, that's when I went to AWP for the first time, the writing conference for anyone listening who has not had the joy of going to AWP. And that was a real, um, kind of coming back to myself. And I wrote, um, the, the poem, I pump milk like a boss after that conference. And that felt like a breakthrough and like kind of a way to, yeah, to find my, my new voice. Um, yeah, so it really, it took a while, but she was pretty, I mean, she was pretty young. And then when she was 18 months old, we, we, I didn't have childcare until she was 18 months. And then once that happened, I could have a more like sustainable, um, creative, uh, schedule.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. That's <laughs> a long time to be um, without childcare and trying right. to write. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and I mean, my partner is um, a very like he's a stay at home. You know, he's kind of a stay at home dad, but a writer who works from home. And so we had the flexibility where if I really felt myself needing like I need to work today, then we we could trade off. And so that helped a lot. And that made it possible. Yeah, definitely. I'm like getting I, I'm getting that third trimester windedness.
0: My diaphragm is uh, pushed up. <laughs> so you know, take take breathing breaks whenever you need. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um. And thank you for coming on in the middle of the, your third trimester nest. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to so. <laughs> um. You mentioned how you had changed as a writer. When you had your daughter, um, both in finding a new form with um, piecing together fragments and also in the logistics of actually getting writing done. Tell me a little bit more about the difference in writing um, your previous book and this one. I am not trying to hide my hunger from the world.
1: In terms of kind of like the the day to day, like what writing life looked like yeah, between that. tell me all yeah. of it. Yeah, what writing was yeah. like,
0: what what the experience of writing the poems was like. Yeah. Just how had you changed as a writer?
1: Yeah, well, and it's funny because um, you know, my di- my dinner with Ron Jeremy was my second book, and I wrote it pretty soon after my first book, and it, I felt like I wrote it. Like once I found out I was pregnant, I think I had those and I've talked to other mother writers. I don't know if you felt this way, but this worry, like, okay, I'm not gonna write again, or like yeah. this is that window's closing. Um, and so I was like, Okay, nine months, let's do it. And so there was and I really feed off of that kind of um external pressure or like having that momentum. Um, because otherwise, you know, I think we can sit on things forever and and not or ask me for myself I can sit on something forever and not really finish it and I really liked having that um kind of like with my daughter being born like this other project that I knew I wanted to to really give a chance to be out in the world um but at the so at the same time it was rushed but it was also it's like you know the days what is it what is that phrase the days are long oh, but the yes. the years mm-hmm. are short it was very much like that like I had these long luxurious days because I you know, I didn't have a small child to look after and I was doing a writing residency. And so it was, you know, I wrote for, you know, eight hours a day and the, I was at McDowell and they like, you know, bring you lunch. And so I was kind of this like pampered pregnant panda while I was there, <laughs> like getting the best bamboo. And it was like, it was glorious. And I was reading a lot of Diane Seuss at that time, who I just, she's, and she's, I mean, she, I, she's my forever kind of poetry godmother Um and just like badass punk high priestess and so she was very much with me there and kind of guiding me on and teaching me how to write autobiographically um with while also having that lyricism and kind of fantastical um leaps and so that was that was my dinner with ron jeremy and then it was also about porn and having this conversation with with um ron jeremy and kind of, which was, I think, a way of closing this chapter. I mean, I'm always going to write about sex and sexuality, but it felt like I was, at the time, I thought I was saying goodbye to the way that I write about sex, and, you know, I don't think that's really true now, but then um, I'm not trying to hide my hungers from the world. It's so different, because I didn't see it as a book for so long. It really was, like, each poem I wrote felt like a life raft, and felt like I am I am so lucky to have this moment to write this and just, um, you know, so when my daughter was a little bit older and 18 months, I, I went to the coffee shop two days a week when she was in childcare, And like those days are just amazing. And I think I felt a lot of pressure at first to produce. And then once I let go of that pressure, I could really play. And so I think so much of this book for me was really about joy and finding out how to play in language again. Hi, Dina.
0: I just, yeah, let's put <laughs> that up here, Dina.
1: <laughs> Dina.
0: Dina says, you are my badass punk high priestess. Special. Oh, you are mine, <laughs> Dina. <laughs> Thank you for listening, Dina. Um, yeah, so, so many of that, so much of that resonates with me, too. The mm-hmm. um, finding the need to, to play again and, and, like, how to stop taking yourself so seriously at a certain point after you've produced some work and then you feel compelled to produce more work and then the pressure you know so
1: right and like seeing you know peers go you know there was you know I don't like this is like kind of like an unattractive quality but I think you know we all have it to some extent like jealousy you're seeing if you're in a position where you can't really be writing and then you see your peers who are like just like barreling ahead and you're like yeah go go but you're like what about me? Like, I, don't forget about me, guys. And like, I think I had this thought, like, I'm gonna write my way in so that like, you know, nothing's good, like, I don't know, I won't be forgotten. And like, oh, what an awful way to, yeah. to, cre- or what, that was not productive for me. That felt very much like a, my, whole body like firmly responded no like we will not respond to that pressure
0: (laughs) yeah antithetical to creativity yeah yeah I
1: mean competition I do think can be really
0: useful but
1: not in like a self-punishing way no
0: yeah Um, so I want to go back to Ron Jeremy and sex a little bit so tell me more tell me more about sex just well leave it there just tell me anything you (laughs) want to tell me (laughs) Well,
1: yes, what can I say? Um the re- you know, cuz it's so funny. I was just talking about this with someone how like I I write so graphically in my writing about sex and sexuality, but in my kind of persona, like I'm very um I feel like very respectful or like I don't I don't ever like pride. and like I don't I don't talk about like my sex life even like with pretty good friends, like which is so, you know, so different from my my life on the page. Um, but I, you know, I I think sex is so interesting to write about because especially not just sex, but sex in a way that's really flipping the gaze on how women are are viewed as sexual beings, and like really writing my way into a narrative that I think when I you know I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, and so porn writing about porn for me was a way to kind of like reclaim my agency with as a person who enjoys sex and enjoys pornography. and and the pleasure of it. I think in the 80s and 90s, it was just women. I mean, were so much sex objects like it was like the era of Pamela Lee Anderson and Pamela, you know, which God bless her. I like I love her and have so much respect. But I think like those were like my role models Um, and that there was one way to be sexy. There was one way to, en- to enjoy sex as a woman, which was really not actually enjoying it, but appearing like you're enjoying it so that the man could get off. And I think I had to um I was really interested in just exploring that and kind of exploring what I learned as a teenager about sex and so I could go back and really heal a lot of things. Um but yeah, I mean it is it's funny, I don't really have like a great answer, but why is sex so empowering to write about for me? I don't I don't know, but I know that I like growing up I loved Madonna. Like she was someone who I was like, yes, like that is a powerful ass woman. And I remember seeing that her coffee table book, um, Oh, my God. What is it? Could you remember her coffee table book that I was knew. like such a scandal? Yeah. Was remember? it
0: just Vogue or was it called something else? I don't know. Oh I know what God. you're talking about. That. Yeah.
1: there I forget um what the title is, but there's, you know, just these amazing like leather photos. And I found those images so empowering because it's like someone who it was. I, I think even though I was young, like I knew it was a performance and like for a mm-hmm. woman to kind of own a performance felt like so liberating to me. Um, So all of those things feel really rich. Um, and then, you know, I grew up also in Provincetown, like spending kind of like half my year there as a kid. And Provincetown is this gay mecca. And to be there in the 90s was this really vital time and where like sex and sexuality was a performance. And I really found so much joy in it. And so I think when I'm writing about the performance of sex and sexuality now, it's kind of a way of, yeah, re- returning to joy rather than feeling repressed which i think is so easy to do even now like to feel like um women still like if i look a certain way then i can't really be a sexual person or if i enjoy sex too much that's um you know uncouth (laughs) i mean this isn't just clearly stuff that i'm yeah i don't think that's everyone's baggage but i do think that's um yeah that's stuff i'm trying to always unlearn
0: yeah, so let's yeah. let's talk about sex and motherhood yeah. <laughs> and like and this book where um where, as you said you you are so um open about bodies right about the, mm. the female body and just the, the first um poem in the book that I referenced earlier and I think you mentioned uh, I pump milk like a boss I mean it is just so visceral and you really get the experience of what it's like to try to squeeze milk out of your body and, and yes yeah and um so let's talk about that about the bodies of mothers writing the bodies yes. of mothers and writing the body of a mother as a sexual um entity. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in the book like I was
1: cuz I feel like I was less interested in um writing about my own like sexual desire in this book but really using the kind of energy of that language to write about birth and to write about the postpartum body and to, like, really, yeah, to get visceral, to, like, talk about, yeah, blood on the sheets. And, like, I I really love bodily fluids. I think, like, it's um, an amazing part of being alive that we, like, leak things. Like, we're like slugs. <laughs> we leave traces. <laughs> like, and, Um,
0: and (laughs) I don't know,
1: I don't know why I love it so much, except for it's just like, it's juicy, like we're juicy beings. And like, you know, I, I think I want to, and I, those are the kind of poems I like to write. I love to write things that are full and I like to read things that are abundant. Um, and so really feeling, (laughs) yeah, like claiming like the abundance of our bodies in, in every way, not just for women who choose to breastfeed, but um women who just use their bodies to hold their babies and to um, just literally keep their families alive. I think it's just so amazing. And I think that those themes naturally draw out a language that's visceral because it is such a visceral subject. Um And I think, you know, giving birth was transformative and everyone has their kind of own um, birth story. And I think, uh, yeah, writing this book was a way of, of really kind of putting that into language and to harness that power that I felt after.
0: Yeah, can you tell me about your birth story? There's a, now, there's a poem in here. Um, <laughs> yes. Hold on, I wonder, and for anyone who hasn't read it, I'm not going to read it, maybe you'll read it later, but um mm-hmm. where is it? The one, the one about the asshole. I write
1: poems about motherhood.
0: Is that, that one? one? Yep, that yeah. One. Yeah. Um, I wonder, well, you have prepared to read a poem to us. Would you feel comfortable reading that one? And then we can read, read that, that one, one later. Okay, yeah, can that you read that one, one? Yeah,
1: I would love to. Okay. Um,
0: and, and then we'll yeah. talk about it with
1: you. And this, just um, a little kind of backstory. Um, so I wrote this in response to, I feel like I've told the story a lot about this poem, but uh, a few years ago, um, an editor like of a well-known magazine tweeted out an article about how women were ashamed to submit poems about motherhood. And then he wrote, why is that guys? And I just found it so like, um, it just really hit me in the wrong way. Uh, To hear an editor who does not publish poems about motherhood asking why we're not submitting those poems. (laughs) I was like, cause you motherfucker, that's why cause you're not publishing them. And so, and also just that I found it really offensive that there's this idea of a motherhood poem and I could just, you know, imagine what his conception of that would be. And so I wanted to write something that would really explode his idea of what a motherhood poem is. (laughs) I write, I write poems about motherhood. Tonight I can write the most motherly lines. For example, it's true. My asshole will never be the same after giving birth, not its shape, but its soul. Small wick of shadow. I once called home and dream. Tonight I can write how it burned like a votive, the whole inverted star, a series of grievances from which another self grew, seance and seams split off to live parallel lives like vaporish twins. I can write that I gave birth and died and came back to life, and my asshole will never be the same. It wore a haunted look those first few weeks. Claimed it needed to take fresh air in the country, wore aggressively Victorian clothes, and strutted around naming geodes like a gentleman farmer. Shut up, asshole, I admonished. Tonight I write my daughter emerged and split me into two selves. It didn't hurt the way they said it would. I rocked on my knees, singing a song like hurtling my voice off a cliff. My husband's hand disappeared into mine, and for a moment I left this world, a hem of blood between us. I broke onto the shore of a fixed note. I helixed and drank the urine of starved apparitions to keep me afloat, slapped the shit out of my reflection, squatted and squeezed a rocky planet out from the blue horizon like a ship bifurcating a labial sky. But my asshole, to whom I must now give credit where credit is due, taught me how to anchor to the earth, locate the hot center which I always knew was there, but never saw, shining in my sacrum like Orion's belt when they stitched me shut in a ragged, casual way, even though I wished to stay open a little longer, unhinged and full of silences. Tonight, I can write that I'd give birth a million times over and not tell anyone about it, if I could feel that kind of way again, one hollowed self open wide, enough to swallow my own body, then spit it back out onto the earth.
0: Thank you. I love that poem. It's not only absolutely stunning and beautiful, but it is funny at the same time, which I don't know. how you, It's like it's tender and powerful, but also made me laugh out loud in some way. So, yeah. So it's just. Yeah. So hopefully you all enjoyed that, too. Um, Thank you. But so tell me. Um, so this is a great example, I think, of how you write so viscerally, yeah, lyrically and how you can make. Um, bodies and juices and assholes, poetic and <laughs> <laughs> powerful. Yeah. Um, but what, what led me to ask about that poem was yes. your reference that um, you found childbirth to be so empowering and so transformative. Yes. And I think the end of that poem about how you wish you could stay open longer and yeah. sort of, um, uh, I don't even know what what the line was, but like to consume yourself in some ways. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that, about what your, your own experience was like? Yeah,
1: well, I just feel like there was that moment, like, you know, there's this, you're kind of in between worlds at that point. Like my daughter had been born, she's on my chest, and it's like, you know, I want to cry thinking about it. It's like, you've crossed that, I've crossed that threshold, I'm holding her, she's there, and at the same time, I'm delivering the placenta. So it's like this ongoing, you know, birth doesn't end just when the child comes out. And it doesn't even end like after the placenta comes out. Like, right. Like there's this idea of the fourth trimester. But like those first, you know, those those beginning hours are so um, like ethereal. You you know, time stops. The, the time doesn't exist anymore. Right. Like you're just in this other state and there's still that pure adrenaline that you've had. But you're also I was also exhausted. Um but just I remember I just want to hold on to that feeling of holding her for the first time while the placenta is still in me. And so like we're still you know, she's still connected to me. Right. Like the umbilical cord is still there. And like what an incredible you know, we'll never have that again. Like we'll never have her connected to me in that way. Um And so I think that's part of it. And um and really just, you know, the. It felt, you know, that felt like the right place to end the poem, because that's how energetically it felt after giving birth, that it's you're unhinged, like I'm unhinged. I'm I'm open. And like, what a beautiful thing to be. I don't want someone to come and, and sew me up yet. Like I want to stay in this state um, because, yeah, I, I'm just a feeling like, you know, you'll never feel that way again. Yeah. And, that, uh, you, you know, yeah.
0: Yeah, you're bringing tears to my eyes now, too. Yeah. I think our daughters are the same age. Mine is when yeah. turned five. So yeah. I remember that so well. And like right. this is the time at which they're starting to really move away from us, right? Yeah. Like they're becoming more independent. Yeah. So thinking about that moment of them. I'm going to grab tissue. Yeah. Um, thinking yeah, about um, <laughs> being um, connected to you in that way that they never will be yeah. again, but will only yeah. sort of move further and further away. I it's, know. know. <sighs> yeah no, it it's, once, it's, 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 it's <laughs> it is but it's yeah. brutal, yeah, yeah. um, tell me a little bit about your daughter while we're talking about five year olds.
1: yeah, uh, she's just she's magical, she's amazing. Um she's like not too far away from where I am right now. She's outside playing. um, and just like a little po- I mean, you know, I don't want to label her as anything, but uh, I find everything she says poetic as you know, I feel like parents do with their kids, and her words find their way into my poems. and just the way you know, the way she looks at the world is always blowing my mind, um, and just a tender hearted, like incredible, (laughs) you're going to make me cry, just an an incredible person. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and just amazing to see how it just keeps growing and the issues about to start school. And so we're we're all preparing for that. And uh, yeah, it's yeah. If it feels like a gift As you know, as hard as those hard times are. Um,
0: Yeah. 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 Have you um seen so how how have you changed through motherhood? I mean that's such a big question beyond writing, but like, you know, yeah. in the last five years, how have how have you as a person changed?
1: It's just so much. And especially now that I'm in this other transformation where, you know, I'm seven months pregnant and that feels like it's um yeah, just a very you know, it's just it feels so different from how I felt like a month ago and the month before that, but i I think I've let go of a lot of perfectionism, and you know of course, I think that's just you know it's like I'll laugh at myself for saying that later on because I don't think yeah it's, I think I've seen it more clearly as how it's a foe and maybe how I can use it in a in a productive way um, but i and i and at the same time, I think I really value prof- my profession as a writer and really take it a lot more seriously than I ever did at the same time, while also being like not taking it seriously. <laughs> and I think it's this struggle. And I think someone you had on you, you, you um, emailed out this like really gorgeous, amazing tweet from another guest who said that like, fuck ballots, my life is a mess. And like, that's a good thing. Yeah. Um And I think it's only recently that I've Really seeing that myth of balance to be so toxic, and I don't know why. Like, and it's not even just about motherhood. We, like, in college or as like a young younger writer, it felt like this a thing to aspire to. Like, oh, one day I'm gonna have balance. One day I'm gonna like work out and eat well and sleep well and write and blah, blah blah blah. It's like I wish someone had just told me like, you're never no, you're never gonna do that. You are never going to like find balance, and you shouldn't. And um, and I heard like a year ago. Uh, At the beginning of the pandemic, I heard this amazing panel with Camille Dungey and Erica Meitner and Tina Chang and uh, Amy uh, Nazika Matatiel. And and they were talking about balance. And Amy said something her mother told her, which is that that balance is not what we should strive for, but rather we should feel really lucky to have a full life where we're being pulled in different directions. And it's a gift Mm -hmm. to feel actually like you're unbalanced because that means you have things that need you. And that blew my mind because like, I really at that a year ago at that point, I was like, OK, it's like, you know, if I can just balance writing and motherhood, I'll be happy. And like just I was miserable because that just could never happen. There are days or weeks where I'm writing and my daughter isn't getting it and my family's not getting as much of me. And then there are like weeks and months where my writing isn't getting the best of me. And, you know, like, of course, it sounds so simple and obvious to say that, but um, I really felt like that was. Uh, so liberating to hear and I think yeah the me five years ago was like I'm going to do it all and and just you know like who am I doing that for like am I doing that to impress someone on Twitter like that's like such a waste (laughs) such a waste of time and really you know I think my husband has really taught me that like you know the main people who I uh want to, and this again, like sounds very childlike that I'm just learning this, but he really showed me that, you know, I want to save the best of me for the people I love and not try and impress, you know, don't do things to impress people who I don't know. And I think that's something that's really hard, especially being writers and needing like a public platform. And we are in the attention economy where like to sell books, you want to be like center stage. Um, but I really do want to try and like remember that that's not the center, like that's not where. Yeah, that's not where I want to, like, live. Yeah. No, so now yeah,
0: no, that's so eloquently said. <laughs> yeah, I know that's so eloquently said. And it is empowering Um, to think that how lucky we are to be needed and to be pulled in so many directions. That's not something I'd ever thought about. I hadn't thought about it in that perspective. So that's, that's really helpful to me, too. Because, right? like, actually, like, when we
1: think about, like, do are there people we know who are balanced? I don't think I know anybody who. No. Yeah, and yeah, it's just that's just such a like it's like very me- mechanistic, or it's like that's not human. That's not. I mean, I don't know. It is still like something. I mean, I still like I meditate, and I like to feel balanced, like emotionally. But in terms of like how I designate my day to day, um, and I even saw like there's like you know some Instagram mom who I followed who, um, you know she's just like an you know she's like a lifestyle. Person, But I remember her revealing to her followers that she's like, you know, today I let my daughter watch like eight hours of cartoons so that I could get work done. And I was like, you were so brave, so brave for saying that. And I don't know why we're so I mean, I do know why we're so afraid to share that, because we know we're going to get judged the fuck out of and uh, everyone has something to say. And, um, yeah, it's like it's really not easy. I think I. A few years, I mean, there was a reason why a few years ago, why, why I felt so, um, protective over my image as a mother. I wanted to seem like a perfect mother all the time and at the same time be like trying to keep up in my writing. And I think it's cause that feeling of being, I don't know if you felt this way, being on the playground. I just would feel like, okay, mothers are like checking each other out. It wasn't always like the supportive community. It's kind of like, oh, like you're letting your child eat those snacks or you're, and that's the kind of stroller you use or you use a stroller and just there's so much of that. And I feel like I'm, I don't want to sound like I'm mis- misogynistic here or like I feel like that sounds like it's blaming women. And I think it's not mother's fault. We're in a culture that, um, values appearances over like substance. <laughs> and so like people feel like, okay, everyone is feeling that pressure to perform. And it's, it's a, it's so unhealthy. I don't know if other people have gone through that.
0: I'm sure they have. I have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and there is, there's, um, whether or not it's real, there's shame involved or yes. fear of being, yes. um, judged by others. And right. I mean, my daughter watches TV in the morning before. So we moved to Connecticut a couple years ago to be closer to my parents. And thank goodness we did because yes. now they can help watch my daughter. Amazing. So I can get work done. Um, but before they come to pick her up in the morning, she sits and watches TV while I do work on my laptop. And, like, you know. She's yeah. happy. You're happy. Exactly. Yes. But, no, I still feel that that guilt of, like, my daughter is sitting here watching, like, 10 episodes of Octonauts while I'm yeah. doing work. Literally, yeah. But who am I feeling right. guilty for? That's right. Question. Or we have
1: this invented person who's, like, this other mom is out there, like, making her organic snacks and who's, like, has these, like, activities laid out that are structured. And, you know, like, God, you know, there are people like that. God bless them. But that's not that. Why does that have to be better? Like, I don't. Right. I And even saying that, I start to feel like, oh, my God, maybe is is that better? And I sound like an asshole. But I just, yeah, there's just, there's just so much. that I mean, that just, such, like, shines a light on how much pressure is on us. Mm-hmm. And, like, yeah, I let my daughter watch a lot of cartoons when I have to work, too. Yeah. And. I, like I think I want to say that so that other people are like, oh, okay, yeah, like I'm I do that and that's okay. I'm not going to feel bad anymore.
0: Yeah, exactly. No, I try to be very transparent that the only way I get anything done is that my parents are watching my daughter right now when her school is closed and everything. Yeah, because otherwise you look like a superwoman and right, it feels good to be perceived as a superwoman, but it's not reality. It's right. There's help involved. There's support. There's yeah, you know. It's important and it's, to be transparent. Uh, uh, yes.
1: And like, especially during the pandemic, I'm so surprised. I thought that, I mean, I do think that there were more, I think there's so many conversations actually about the things that we lean on and how it's okay to lean on these structures when we don't have that support. And I, yeah, and I really like did open up people's eyes to like how mothers are struggling in general, like even before the pandemic and that there's not enough support. And I just, I don't know what to do. I don't know what the answer is to any of it, except, you know, Get people yeah. into Congress and Senate who are not insane, and, <laughs> and and try and be and try and be yeah transparent. As much yeah. As possible.
0: I yeah. mean that's the first step, right? There was this um, great series in the New York Times. It's called what was it Primal Scream? I think it was all about mm-hmm. mothers who are really struggling during the pandemic, yes. and there are all these think pieces, and it was everywhere in the news. And of course, nothing changes. But the think first changes. step maybe is. Awareness, I don't know. Right. But
1: then there has to be another step. I don't know what it is. So. I don't know. I mean, this kind of leads me to who I, I, I said on social media who I wanted to talk about, but I, and I was just talking about this, um, with my friend's father here. Um, Courtney Love, I feel like, I don't know, how am I going to connect Courtney Love to this? This is a, I think we need more role models of women who are fuck ups. And we need yeah. more, we just need more, we just need more images and representations of women and mothers. Uh, period, Um, but especially to, like, widen this, this, uh, I feel like we're just, we feel so pinned in that there's one way to parent, there's one way to mother, and, I'm gonna say, and Courtney Love is not my role model for mothering, but she is, I think she stands, she, she, like, holds this amazing territory where she's like, I'm going to be over here, and I'm going to do what all the men are doing, and you're going to judge me for it, and I don't give a fuck, and, like, we need more people like that to just widen the scape, and, uh, just so we can, um, yeah, just feel a little bit more free. And I feel like the freer that we feel, the more power that we feel. And I think that's, that's a start for me. Just yeah. feeling a little, yeah, a little bit more empowered.
0: Um, yeah, I see there. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's talk about pop culture a little bit more. That yeah. was something that you particularly wanted to talk about. And it's, um, I love the, the intersection between pop culture and poetry and, um, you know, going back to the visceral nature of of the subjects of the poetry. So, all these things are mixing together in your work, and it's so fascinating. Um, tell me more about your love of and your interest in pop culture.
1: Yeah. Um, oh, I love, I love writing about it so much. And I've been doing, you know, my first book, I wrote a lot about Rodney Dangerfield, and it really, I don't know if you're familiar with his, with his work, but he, He's so poetic, both as a performer and then as the writer, like the, I feel like the one liner is such an incredible form. And so I feel like there's just, you know, I learn how to write by watching pop culture figures. Rodney Dangerfield, I feel like, helped me write, um, you know, um, you know, epigrams. And he he taught me how to kind of make a turn in my work or how to keep things concise, but also funny. I mean, you can learn so much from stand up comics. And so I think that's that's a big part of it. Um and then also, you know, someone like Courtney Love, who I feel like there are pop culture loves who aren't necessarily um informing my writing, but they're informing how to be um really brave in the work or like how to really stop caring what other people think. And like I'll listen to like an old whole song sometimes before I write to just kind of I think to get in touch with my 14 year old self. I feel like she's like huge for me as a writer. Like I really trust 14 year old Kendra to like to be truthful <laughs> and so Courtney is like a way of connecting me to her um and to yeah to be raw um to my husband has this really great phrase to take it by force and I feel like that just means you don't wait for someone to give you permission you just take it and um yeah and then yeah, I think music kind of really energizes me I know that a lot of writers have that you know my friend Keith Leonard and I He's an amazing poet, but you know, for a while we were making playlists called Poet Walks to Her Desk. And so we would just like have this amazing, kind of like a, you know, boxer walking out into the ring. We would have this, we had this playlist of like, all right, this is what we're going to listen to when we go to our desk. And so anticlimactic, because then you listen to like this like Drake song and then you're like sitting in silence on your desk. But, and now he and I are um, trading, um, early aughts music videos and kind of challenging each other to write about the most, uh, unpleasant ones. And that's and I and I think that is kind of like a and we're doing that because it's like a low stakes. He's he's a father. He has two kids, and so yeah, it's a way to just like not have pressure and just and keep it fun. And I
0: love this. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. And what a great kind of prompt and way to like you said early on, play and get back to the fun of writing. I love this. Yeah. yeah.
1: And like back to earlier versions, you know, like getting back to like who I was in 2002 is really fun. I'm like, all right, when I was listening to this 50 cent song, like who was I? And like, how did I perceive this song? What was I doing? <laughs> and that's always a great place to start. I, I recommend, I recommend looking at a Cameron or a Ja Rule. They really, <laughs> and they can start, they can really bring a lot of interesting things to the table. <laughs>
0: gosh so I'm fascinated by this idea of a younger self I've been yeah. working on, I don't know what it is I'm working on exactly but I'm going back through all of the old journals started from when I was like 10 and behind the curtain there's this whole bookcase full of journals and they're so earnest and so uncomfortable um but like you said sort of so honest because yeah. we we were at least I was in I'm guessing maybe you were too, a very sort of raw, like emotionally yeah. person when you were 14. Oh, yeah. Um, so reconnecting yeah. to that, I think is really powerful, but scary for me because it makes yeah. me feel really, like, icky, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. And also, you I, yourself? like, want
1: to, I want to mother that part of myself at the same time, too, being like, honey, like, don't do it. Like, what
0: are you doing? Like, <laughs>
1: And like, oh, you clearly needed like someone to like steer you in the right direction. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, you you needed to go in that direction to get where you eventually landed. And mm-hmm. um, I, yeah, I love 14 year old Kendra so much, and I, I think it's because she was so lost. And so I do, yeah, it's like a maternal love, but it really is um, I the, the achiness I feel there are other ages where I feel like ickiness and it has to do with just like choices I was making at the time. Like, you know, 24 year old Kendra, I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> like, like, I don't want to read what you were writing about that terrible ex, you know, like, I just don't, I, I don't want to. <laughs> um, but I do, yeah, I love, and I do think, yeah, music is such a great way to reunite with those selves. I don't have, I mean, I do have some journals, but I think that's so cool that you have that record.
0: Cause it's interesting. Yeah. I don't know what I'll do with it yet, but, um, accessing that, is very powerful, so yeah. I want to know, like, what do you do with that, um, with that energy once you access it through song? So you you reconnect with fourteen year old Kendra, mm. and then what do you do with that? Hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, and I mean, I you know, it's kind of um, uh, what's the word like, um, not what's the word for when you do something you don't think that you're gonna do? It's like counterintuitive, right? Because mm-hmm. like I'm. I'm starting with a very personal experience through song. But then when I actually if I'm going to write about the song, I don't write about the personal experience. I, I use the emotion like I. So whatever emotion I was feeling about the song at the time or in, in the present, I try. I first try and find like um, language that matches it and, um, and and kind of start in a maybe more hypothetical zone. I don't want to box the poem in too soon. So I like to kind of start broad or that's why a lot of the poems in I'm not trying to hide my hungers from the world have kind of like almost like punchline titles. So I want to kind of just start with a conceit or like start with kind of um, a really hilarious situation and go from there. I'm trying to think of an example. And I think Diane Seuss does this so well. I mean, she is writing very personally, but, um, you know, she has that poem how will I, sometimes I wonder how I'll leave this world. Will I leave this world the way my ex dragged his garbage bag full of clothes through the snow? Um, like, and she has this like list of ways that one can leave, leave the world. Yeah. I think, I think repetition is, is such a good vehicle for that. Um, where, yeah, And writing non-linearly. So yeah, I could end up writing very personally, but I don't want to stay stuck there. I like to kind of move in between different modes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think of like an early art poem where I where I felt like it it was successful, and I don't know if I have any successful ones yet. Um,
0: but they've been they've been
1: so fun. Well,
0: it sounds amazing though, even as a writing exercise, just to reconnect yeah. with an emotion and then go from there. And yeah, I might have to yeah. try that.
1: Um, yeah, like there's so many, like, uh, you know, I think Terrence Hayes is the first poet I read who I felt was really doing that with music and also with pop culture figures. Like he has this amazing poem about Mr. T and it's a sonnet. Um, and the language is so heightened, you know, it's not necessarily language that you would associate with Mr. T, but of course it is like it's Mr. T is an operatic figure. And so he's both writing operatically. Um, but then also like, you know, I feel like he has some other lines that you wouldn't necessarily associate with Mr. T and. And then uh, Hanif Abdurraqib, I feel like obviously he's such a he's such a go to for that. Um, like he writes about Carly Rae Jepsen in this like really kind of like gloomy, like melancholic way. And I'm like, you're writing about the singer who did Call Me Maybe, but it's like it's like very dark <laughs> and sad poem, which is perfect. Yeah, so, the contrast, yeah,
0: yeah, fascinating. yeah, yeah, so good. Um, right,
1: that dissonance, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, Tell me about teaching writing in prisons.
1: Yeah, well, it's been it's been a long time since I've done that. The last time was probably like 2011 that I taught my last class at uh, the Tennessee Prison for Women. Um, But before that, um, before I did grad school or before I applied to grad schools, I was working full time at the Suffolk County House of Corrections in Boston um and i taught there for 2 years uh, as just a full-time writing instructor and it was part of a offender reentry program and you know i feel i i tend to get annoyed when i hear people talk about teaching in prisons because i feel like there's this feeling of like patting yourself on the back or mm-hmm. like and that could be a projection of mine but also I'm never going to be okay teaching in a prison. Like I just, I, I I don't think it's anything to feel proud about. Like I think that there should not be prisons period. And so to work inside of one never felt right for me, even if I felt, even if it was like, okay, I'm part of a service that's eventually going to be useful to my students. It still felt like I'm part of the system. And Mm -hmm. so there, I think that was something I tried to write a little bit about. I don't know if I did it successfully. I think, um, Early on, I was really informed by like poetry of witness. And I know now that feels really just dated. The idea mm-hmm. of witness is so like elevating your perspective when really it's like write about your own shit. Like why you, don't focus on what they're doing? Focus on what you're doing. And I think I was writing about um, teaching in prisons before I could really write about my own, um, my own things that I needed to unpack and heal from. And so I'm, yeah, I'm always really suspicious of people writing yeah from that or i don't know i'm not going to judge anything but uh because i think it's just you know it's just how someone does it you know i love carolyn forche and i love um her poetry of witness i think she does it in a really incredible way
0: mm-hmm. yeah but, for yeah. anyone who doesn't know what poetry of witness is um tell us a little bit about what it is
1: yeah i mean i can't speak too much i don't i don't think i know enough about it to really uh, describe it but the idea of a poet going into, um, into like a war zone or into a place where something is happening and feeling like, okay, it's my job to record what's happening. I need to have the record. And there are people who, who, it's like, I think docu poetics is actually really, I think that's what's turned into docu poetics. I think is incredible. Um, like Erica Meitner and, um, Claudia Rankin. And like so many poets doing it where it becomes the focus is really on yourself, but you're you're engaging with what's happening around you. And I think just kind of taking the responsibility. I think there was a mode of poetry where you, the the more um absent the poet was from the poem, like the better the poem is. And I'm so glad that we're away from that now. Yeah. And, and you know, that felt like a very I don't know, it felt like a very male thing to me at the time, like. Like And, you know, the idea of taking the personal out of the political, which is just so, you know, silly. Yeah, they're clearly the same. And um, so, yeah, it feels like we're in this really exciting time right now for the way that poets are right. Like Jose Olivares is someone who I think about. um, He's not I wouldn't say he's like a docu docu poet, but just someone who's like engaging with politics in like an incredible way. And Dinesh Smith. I mean, literally every poet out there, I feel like, is doing incredible
0: work. I feel like it's a really rich time for it. Yeah, you talked a little bit about being at um, was it McDowell and yeah, sort of, and learning or pushing yourself to be more autobiographical or to write more yeah. from your own life. Um, was that something just given the this conversation and how we're heading into the more personal? Um, yeah that poetry is heading in the more personal direction. Is that Was that a challenge for you to write from a personal place? Was it a shift or was it something you always had kind of intended to do? Yeah,
1: I think it just felt, you know, I think being in a residency will just do that to you because you're just with yourself and, like, you know, you can socialize, but that's never, that's not my favorite thing to do at a residency. I don't mm-hmm. want to be like playing ping pong. <laughs> like, I want to be like getting sleep or writing. But yeah, you're just like sleeping. <laughs> Um, shout out to people who play ping pong at residencies, though, because I do think that all is, like whatever you need to do to write in the end is the best thing. Um, but, um, yeah, I think being at a residency really made me just reflect and being, a, being in a reflective mode of looking back Um and probably because at that time when I was pregnant, the future seemed so unknown and so uncertain and so scary. So it was actually really comforting to look back. And I think there's something about being pregnant too, where you want to, um, yeah, like I wanted to like take an inventory of, um, these different phases of my life and really kind of like try and, and, um, you know, close some doors or like try and get some sense of closure with certain things. And I really feel like entering this new phase kind of cleanly. And I think that was part of it. Um, and, and like I said, I, I didn't have a, or I hadn't really found a model yet for how I wanted to do it. And, um, so having these kind of external, um, or these uh, received forms really helped. And so I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm not writing formally in that book, but even just like having a Diane Seuss poem and knowing, okay, I really love how she starts this poem out about her leg and it ends up taking place in Paris. And so like learning how to move from like one end to the other, I felt like was really fun. So knowing that I was going to write about this experience when I'm 14, but end up writing about um Courtney Love at the end. Um yeah, it kind of gave a lot of shape to, Yeah. Yeah. And I'm trying to think like how I felt about autobiographical writing before then, except I think there was, uh, this idea of like the confessional that I was always being pushed into and I, so sort I of kind of resented it. Like I'm not going to be confessional. I'm going to be like, um, I'm going to do what Terrence Hayes does and I'm just going to be like lyrical and narrative at the same time and not feel like I need to reveal anything about myself. And now I really enjoy writing about myself,
0: um, <laughs> and my experiences. <laughs> I enjoy reading yeah. about your personal experience. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> for writing about them. Yeah. Um No, I'm interested. Tell us a little bit more about the sense of closing doors through writing, yeah. and what types of doors you felt like you needed to close. Why writing was, why poetry was the vehicle through which to do that. Um, and how maybe that changed once you gave birth? Like, did you did you feel like you succeeded in doing what you set out to do there, or do you feel like there's yeah. still doors that you're like standing yeah. in yeah.
1: yeah, right. They're probably. I don't think any of the doors really stayed shut, but at least I saw um, maybe the people I wanted to keep out from coming into those doors anymore. Like, kind of old, um, like old monsters or something that would cut Like, I'm um, trying to think of. A way to say it, you know, I think I may be and, you know, just on a purely like creative level, like wanting to get rid of old enemies of like self-esteem. So really going Mm -hmm. back to like high school years and saying, like, okay, those mean girls do not have room at the table anymore. Like, why was I carrying their voices for so long? I don't know. But it's time to to let them go. And so I feel like there are different stages of kind of looking back and saying, oh, I'm still carrying on to that. Something that teacher told me. All right. Time to let that go. Mm-hmm. Um and those things do feel I mean like uh, the work now, I think the work keeps going. Like I was like, okay, I'm I'm repeating that like mean thought to myself. Like, all right, let's, let's let that let's let that go again. Um but it gets easier. How and,
0: did but you identify identify
1: the, oh sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you, well I was gonna say, but that's different, you know that's more like how I come to the page and then there's like closing doors in terms of subjects, which I I do feel like that happens. Like there's certain things I feel like i I'm not interested in writing about anymore. Um but that doesn't feel that didn't feel as much a part of getting ready for motherhood as like kind of letting go of um, the way that I saw myself as a younger person that wasn't helping me anymore. Yeah.
0: yeah. Why did it feel like that was so necessary um, in preparation for motherhood?
1: I don't know. I mean, I want to hear what you maybe if you've had this experience, too, Um except. I think just this, this desire to come into motherhood feeling like I'm a person that can be relied on and I'm not going to pass on this shit to my child. Like really, yeah, wanting to take an inventory of what are the stories I'm telling myself about myself and my history that I don't want her to have. And I think, you know, that's it starts in pregnancy and then it continues like what, you know, because it's such a having a child is such a harsh um, reflection of like, oh, okay, I, I guess I haven't dealt with this. (laughs) Like, cause I'm hearing my child parrot this back to me and like, fuck, no, I don't want you to feel that way. And, um, (laughs) and really, and I, and I don't think it's like being a perfectionist. Cause I do think I know like being, I do think I've arrived at this feeling like being authentic with my daughter is the most important thing. And I don't want her to see me as perfect. And not that she would, but I, that's not my motivation anymore. Um, But I do. Yeah, I felt really um, kind of just like a like a natural, like how do you say the word sloughing away, like exfoliating Um, and Mm -hmm. the way yeah, that my body was changing. It just made sense. There was like less room for my internal organs in my (laughs) body. They were getting squished and there was less room for like, you know, me, shitty thoughts in my head. Like they just it just really felt like, okay, time to clear out.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I love that did it have anything to do with the fact that you have a daughter? Like what, I mean, it's hard to imagine what you might've felt if you were going to have a son instead. But I know that having a daughter for me brought up a lot of um, yes. questions that I asked myself about my own perception of women's bodies and sexuality and yeah. relationships and all oh, these yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So yeah. I think completely. And like also, um, just my relationships with other women like friendships and just mm-hmm. like women relatives Um, and I think part of that was just wanting to make sure I'm like building a strong foundation like I want everyone in my life to be someone who is really going to show up for me and my child Yeah. and um, yeah so there's that kind of winnowing away and like you kind of find like certain people who you love they're not really on board for this next chapter of the ride and there's a lot of there's a lot of grieving to do I think in that transition mm-hmm. Like grieving yeah. your old self, but also gr- grieving the way that you relate to other people because it changes so much. It does. Um, yeah, but yeah. then makes room for something else. And yeah, mm-hmm. and I think, yeah, grief, right, is something I tried to write about or that feeling of, yeah, like wanting to celebrate this new chapter, but then grieving kind of, yeah, grieving the way that I was in the world before. And I feel Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and now that I've done that grief work, I can like really love, you know, like 30 year old Kendra. And like, I feel like, okay, you were doing you were doing all the
0: all the things you needed to do
1: so that you can get to this next place.
0: I love that. I think since we have a few minutes left, why don't we close with another poem? I would love that.
1: All right. I'll, I'll read. I pump milk like a boss. I pump milk on the side of the road where the grass is biblical green, as if first cousin to the cow, her pink and swollen tits immaculate as the plumbing of a church organ sending up calls to God, brassy mesh of notes, fermented and dank as cush. I pump milk with my bare hands into a bar's bathroom sink, above which is a mirror where someone scrawled I love cricket pussy, and below that everyone deserves to be loved. I look at myself under the fingered smudge, the bodily fluids spattered like haikus, and I pump as if my milk is propaganda, fingers bowing across my chest like a pawn shop violin, milky graffiti tagging the spit-clogged drain. I pump like I'm writing my name in blood, which turns to the milk my child sucks dry, which she turns into blood. I pump like I have a tattoo and my pedenda that says Aerosmith backwards. I pump as if my hands have teeth, One combat boot hitched up on the toilet seat, each hiss of milk chanting like a choir, Yes, bitch, yes, yes, bitch, yes. My tits bitten and salt-veined, as when my baby took her first gulp of air, humming from the engorged crevasse of me like a herd of wildebeest, as if the hive of me could have burst, the infrared honey, the glop-glop of afterbirth dripping down my left leg, spittle and amen, amniotic residue fluorescent with prayer. Do men lactate is a popular Google search, and I wondered what would happen if they could. Are presidents lifting their offspring to their breasts in the deep pockets of night, listening to the dribble of milk sipped from the pulpit of their bodies? Tonight, my breast became so engorged, I said I'd pay someone to suck my tits, half joking. But a woman who heard me followed me to the bathroom, read me a sex poem while I pumped my milk, leaning away from the need in her voice, and the milk came slow. And I pumped and waited for her to finish. And a streetlight scribbled in the parking lot. And I know there's a price we pay for loneliness. And a price we pay to forget it. And so I dedicate my libido to my younger self. And this is how I want to live. Milk stained. A little bit emptied. A little bit in love with the abundance of my body. My milk pale yellow with a layer of cream. Which I will save long after it's turned. Praising its curdled glow. Every time I open the fridge as if its presence is enough to keep me safe, as if it's enough to make me invincible.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Kendra. And Thank you so much for joining me. This was such a wonderful conversation. I could talk to you all night. (laughs) I know. I feel like I'm so bummed. Yeah. Well, I know. (laughs) Yes. Please come back. Please do. Um, And stick around afterwards so I can say goodbye. But thank you again. And, um, yeah. And everyone, buy this book. I'm going to hold it up one more time. It might not be on the Writer Mother Monster bookshop page yet, but I'll put it up tonight so that if you click that link, you'll find the book right there. So, thank um, you so much. and I'm excited to
1: get my Writer Mother Monster Tumblr. I saw that you have those. and I'm super excited <laughs> to have my coffee. Yes. Right. Thank you yes. for the work that you do. This has yeah, been such a pleasure
0: to talk with you. Thank you, Kendra. You too. And thank you all for joining us, as always. As Kendra mentioned, we now have a Writer Mother Monster insulated tumbler, so that if you are writing at 3 a.m. and you need some coffee, or at 3 p.m. and you'd like a tumbler of wine, whatever floats your boat, um, you have a nifty Writer Mother Monster tumbler to drink out of. Just go to the website and you'll find it under merchandise, but... Um, Enough of that. Thank you, Kendra, again, and we will see you not next week. We're taking a little break, um, but in July for the next episode of Writer, Mother, Monster. Thank you and good night.